Hello, you're listening to The Anthill from The Conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. This episode is all about intuition. It might sound like a concept we're intuitively familiar with, but we'll be getting to grips with what exactly intuition is and how it works in our minds and bodies. We'll also speak to some experts in intuitive decision-making to help us understand when we should follow our gut feelings and when we shouldn't. And then we'll be hearing from two scientists, physicist Jim Al-Khalili and his colleague John Joe McFadden, about their pursuit of a hunch that the strange and spooky laws of quantum mechanics could apply to living things. In the last 10, 15 years or so, there have been these isolated experiments that show that, in fact, somehow, life has evolved to make use of some of these um, quantum tricks. So what actually is intuition? We've all had those moments where you get a funny feeling, a thought or conviction that you can't quite explain. It's something that has inspired centuries of research from physicists to philosophers to psychologists. But although researchers these days understand a lot more about intuition and the way it works in the body, there's still a lot that's unknown. To find out more, we spoke to an expert in the matter. I'm Valerie Vermilogon. I'm a research associate at Coventry University and I do research in psychology. It's this feeling like something is slightly off, but you can't place it. So it's, whereas emotions are more like, this is how I feel. It's like a state. It's like sadness, anger, happiness. Whereas a gut feeling is just like, you're like, huh. It's like a slightly, maybe anxious, slightly, I need to be on my guard sort of feeling. I'm not sure if people know where the feeling exactly comes from, but it works in the same way as a feeling. So it's your body telling you something is going on that your conscious awareness doesn't know yet. So basically we have to stop thinking of emotions as dumb bodily responses and more of another type of information processing. So an emotion happens because something in the world has happened that you're body is responding to. We get lots of impressions throughout the day from situations we're in, so sensory inputs of all kinds. This doesn't all enter our conscious awareness. You know, our brain just processes this and the idea is that sometimes we pick up on something. You know, something happens in the corner of your eye, but you don't notice it but you are processing it. And when that happens, and it's a significant event, something that you should pay attention to, then your body tells you something's going on and you start paying attention. And that's a gut instinct. So basically you have processed something, just not in your conscious awareness, not in your working memory. We shouldn't think of intuition and analytic thinking as an either or situation. They're probably best used together. So in the same way, some intuitions that we might have are actually cognitive biases that no longer work. So for example, uh, a cognitive bias that we have is the so-called bandwagon effect, where if a big group of people says, this is how we think about this thing, or this is what we should do, then we tend to follow the, the ideas of the bigger group. But this is actually a bias. Just because a big group of people thinks a certain thing, it doesn't mean that's the correct one. But evolutionary scene that would have probably been a good idea to stick to a group and go along with them that will probably be good for your survival 
But these days, this has now become an intuition or a cognitive bias that no longer works. And the way we are able to move through the world so easily is because we make constant predictions of what to expect. We know that fire is warm and the mechanism in our brain that does that plays a big part in this is the hippocampus, which is a memory structure adjacent to the amygdala. So the amygdala is largely in charge of the emotions in the brain, especially in relation to memories. And what the hippocampus does is it constantly compares incoming sensory experience to memories. And then you either get a match or a mismatch. So it's generally matches until something unexpected happens and then there is a mismatch. And then that signal goes to the amygdala, which puts out signals such that you know, oh, something's weird is going on here. And that's the interaction between the hippocampus and the amygdala. The idea is that happens with intuitions is that your hippocampus is doing this match and mismatch between the sensory experience and your memories. It finds a mismatch, but for some reason this mismatch doesn't reach a conscious awareness. But it still sends a signal to the amygdala, and that's when you get this gut feeling. You're like, oh, something's up. But because the matching procedure didn't come to your conscious awareness, you don't know what is up. And then you get a gut feeling, and then you can figure out, okay, I have to pay attention, something's going on. And then we start thinking and analyzing what, what is happening in the situation based on this gut feeling. Intuition works better for areas that we have expertise in, so or that we have a lot of experience with, because you constantly have to match the current world to your memories. That means if you have a wider range of memories in a certain area, then the hippocampus is better able to match your current experience to these memories, and therefore your intuition will be more on point, so to say. So basically I would use intuitions in areas that are not to do with the fight or flight response, once a day that I have either a lot of experience in or expertise, and after having checked that it's not a cognitive bias that I'm falling prey to. From my research, it was shown that women are definitely happier to admit that they trust in their intuition than men do. But because we have no way of really measuring whether your intuition works or how good you are at really feeling your intuition, we can only ask people, do you trust your intuition? Do you rely on your hunches? That sort of thing. I used to always think of emotions as annoying things that get in the way of thinking, which makes me sound like a robot. Just, <laughs> I do have emotions. I just felt like, you know, they let you astray. And now I'm thinking, no, the em emotions are telling you something else as well. We shouldn't be so dismissive of emotions. So I try and not be as dismissive of my emotions and gut feelings as I used to be. That was Valerie Van Mollicom from Coventry University who spoke to The Conversation's education editor, Holly Squire. Now, when you've got an important decision to make, do you prefer to go with your gut, or do you defer to cold, hard facts? In an age of big data, relying on something like intuition might seem like a strange way for businesses in particular to operate. But I spoke to two management researchers who begged to differ. My name is Chun La Kenji. I'm a lecturer in University of St. Andrews at the School of Management. And my name is Professor Gerard Hodgkinson. I'm Professor of Strategic Management and Behavioural Science in Alliance Manchester Business School. Gerard and Chun La both study decision making and the role that intuition has to play in organisations. They are both quick to emphasise that we understand what intuition actually means. First off, it's really important not to mix up your three I's. Intuition, 
instinct and insight. Instinct is a hardwired reflexive response in the nervous system. If you put your hand on a boiling pan of water, you will withdraw your hand very quickly and involuntarily before you even experience the sensation of pain. That would be a good example of an instinct. You don't have to learn. It comes as a natural process. Insights are the result of conscious thought when we mull over a problem. And that's what Gerard refers to as an incubation period. When you have an insight into something, you can explain why it's the right thing to do. Intuition is different. For starters, it takes place more quickly than rational thought. Genuine intuitions will occur when faced typically with high stakes decisions under time pressure with either too much information to process or insufficient information to go on. A strong, overwhelming sense of this is the course of action we need to take. I don't know why we just do. I know it's right. And if you ask someone who's having an intuition, why is that right? They will not be able to tell you why. They just know. A really great example of this in action comes from a study by psychologist Gary Klein, who spent time in a fire station to understand how firefighters make rapid decisions in stressful situations. Gerard explains. A fire commander felt the overwhelming sense that the building they were in was unsafe. Now, when you're trained to fight fires, one of the things you look for is what's called a flashover point. That's where the heat accumulates to such a level that suddenly the flames go overhead. And once that happens, the, the whole room is satellite. There's really no way out. You're going to be almost certainly killed or if not very seriously injured. All signs and symptoms suggested there was no imminent danger of a flashover, but the fire commander in question felt this overwhelming sense of urgency to get everybody, him and his team, out of the situation at hand. So he called it, and as they left the building, almost immediately it collapsed. Now, what that illustrates is this profound sense of correctness. When people have an intuition like this, they feel a profound sense of inner calm and rightness, despite the chaos that's often pursuing around them. After the event, researchers interviewed the fire commander to try and work out how he knew what to do. Using cognitive task analysis, which is a technique for getting people to reflect on what were the cues you were concentrating on? What were the sensations? What did it feel like? What were the thoughts going through your mind? And came to the realisation that there was a profound sensation of heat, not overhead or in the immediate surrounds, but coming up through the floor. The commander could actually feel heat in his feet. And the flashover was actually happening underneath the room that the team were in. And so having listened to that, if we call it a sixth sense, he called it and everybody survived and lived to tell the tale. Intuition is much more than a fluffy feeling. It's built on a number of cues that your brain hasn't had time to process yet and rationalise. But there are some important qualifications around how intuition works. Number one, is that intuition is only effective in areas that you have a lot of experience in. Now, expertise takes 
many, many years to acquire. In some cases, it's been suggested up to 10 years and more it might take to develop enough repertoires of similar instances that all vary slightly in their characteristics so that you have an adequate reservoir of experience to draw on when you're making these rapid fire decisions. And that expertise is really specific to certain contexts. So another common mistake is to acquire expertise in one context and then immediately try and deploy it with the same level of finesse in another context that's different. That can be very misleading. People in senior management positions, for example, in a particular industry context, then switch jobs, go to another totally different setting. It might be a different industry, different scale of organization or a different country context facing profoundly different challenges. They will then draw on their expertise from past decisions only to find it it simply doesn't work. Shunla Rakunji at St Andrew's School of Management has studied decision-making in the context of policing. She says there are lots of parallels with business when it comes to operating in a high-pressured, uncertain environment. We live in the age of big data. We live in the age of uh, smart data. And there's a lot of information all around. But when the managers need to make quick decisions, that information may not be available or they may not be able to access it. There may not be time to access it, or there may just be too much information that they may not be able to synthesize that in order to arrive at an effective decision. Shunla is as interested in what she calls intuitive misses, so when people follow their gut and get things wrong, as she is in intuitive hits, when your intuition is right. One piece of research she's carried out revolves around a police team during a week of action against drug dealers. Things didn't go quite according to plan. There was an address that the police force was getting intelligence on, linking some of the well-known drug dealers who were selling drugs in and around the town to this address. And these were known individuals to that police force, and they were basically after these drug dealers. And the police officers were sent to have a look at that address many times. The police constable also went to the address to have a walk around and to see what is happening there. So his gut feeling, based on his experience of previous drug searches or previous drug addresses, if you like, suggested to him that, yes, this looks like a drug user's, drug dealer's address. So the curtains were always drawn, the garden looked very messy, the trash looked thrown all over the place. So they were able to gain access into the house very smoothly. And then uh, as they entered, they found a young couple with a baby. And it turned out that, uh, unfortunately, this was not the right address. So what went wrong? In Shunla's interviews with the officers involved, they identified two main issues with the operation. The first was that because it was a very busy week that they had to um, they had to target. So also it seems that although the information they were getting on this address was current because the drug dealers who lived there previously, they kept registering this address as their current address and their cars were registered, their utility bills were still uh, registered at that address. 
However, had the intelligence unit done more thorough search, they would have been able to look at the current residents of that address and find out that they were not the people that they were looking for. She also pointed to the fact that the officers who made the call had a very high success rate, and this may have made them overconfident. People are often very confident about their intuitions, their gut feelings, and um, intuition is very strong. However, it can also misguide us. So, for example, intuitions based on outdated data or insufficient data can also lead us the wrong way. But also relying solely on data could also be misguided. So I suppose the challenge is to achieve a good balance between using intuition and and analysis and the data. Gerard Hodgkinson calls analysis the twin brother of intuition. He's found that the more senior you get, the more you rely on intuition and the less you rely on analysing all the information you have in front of you. If you think about it, that makes sense. As one climbs to more senior positions, the the sheer volume of work rate and information that comes across the desk demands an efficient way of processing information. And and that's why you need years of experience if you're going to take on a very big, high-profile role. But it's really important not to become overly reliant on your intuition. If you're always going with your gut feeling and not taking the time to stop and reflect on things, Gerard says some executives get seduced into thinking they are infallible. And this false sense of capability that's way out of touch with the reality um, can take over. And before you know it, that tips over into hubris. And so, yeah, that lack of self-reflection, self-insight, self-monitoring over the long term will accumulate to a point where people think they're invincible. And that's when they're likely to then make an accumulation of bad decisions that can lead, as we've seen all too often in the press, major organisations to be brought down. So they'll acquire businesses without really thinking through whether there are synergies, uh, whether the return on investment assumptions they're making are realistic. So it really is a case of trying to blend the intuitive with the analytical, seeing the big picture, maintaining the big picture in mind without losing sight of important detail. So if you're weighing up some big decisions right now, or just wondering whether you should trust your gut in general, here is a checklist from Gerard. Ask yourself, do I really have the expert knowledge? Have I really had enough experience in life to have accumulated the kind of insights that mean my intuition is likely to be genuine? What's the real foundation of this feeling I've got? Is it likely that I'm on firm ground here? And if in doubt, share your concerns with other knowledgeable, seasoned colleagues one of the things to do is to is to really have a sense check go to a colleague you trust and say look i've got this feeling very overwhelming feeling that this is what we should be doing i can't quite articulate why what do you think and that may then trigger a deeper level conversation where you can road test when it comes to making decisions You might be someone who relies more heavily on your intuition, or you may prefer the more analytical route. But clearly both are important, and the best decision makers will draw on a healthy mix of the two.
If you like essays on air, then check out In Depth Out Loud, a podcast from The Conversation UK. Our latest episode is on transhumanism and how the quest for technology to be the salvation of humankind neglects to consider some darker truths that could lead to dystopia. Transhumanism is the idea that humans should transcend their current natural state and limitations through the use of technology, that we should embrace self-directed human evolution. If the history of technological progress can be seen as humankind's attempt to tame nature to better serve its needs, transhumanism is the logical continuation, the revision of humankind's nature to better serve its fantasies. That's In Depth Out Loud. Find it on theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. We've just heard how important expertise is when it comes to going with our hunches. And one group of people who have a huge amount of expertise in their area are scientists. So could intuition play a role in driving science forward? Our science editor, Miriam Frankel, spoke to physicist and broadcaster Jim Al-Khalili and biologist John Joe McFadden about an emerging field of research called quantum biology. It's the strange marriage of biology and the counterintuitive world of quantum physics, which rules the microcosmos of atoms and particles. There's already evidence to show that quantum mechanics could be used by certain living organisms, but the duo has a hunch that it may be more fundamental than we can show at the moment. Here's Miriam. All great achievements of science must start from intuitive knowledge, Albert Einstein is believed to have once told a friend. This may seem surprising, given that science is all about rigorous testing and sound analysis. But throughout history, scientists have made great strides by relying on intuition, this strange mix of experience and instant pattern spotting, to come up with unusual ideas and connections, and to help them formulate research questions. But of course, it's only when these ideas have gone through testing that they can be considered scientific knowledge. Physicist Jim Al-Khalili and biologist John Joe McFadden, both from the University of Surrey, know just how valuable a hunch can be. A few decades ago, they were among a small group of scientists who started to suspect that the strange rules of quantum mechanics, which govern the infinitely small world of atoms and particles, may also be used by living organisms. This was a groundbreaking thought because quantum properties, which allow particles to do very strange things, tend to disappear in hot, messy systems such as living bodies. But the duo's suspicion was so strong that they spent years exploring the topic together in their spare time. Today, they've published papers, written books, and set up the first-ever doctoral training center in quantum biology at Surrey. I spoke to them about what inspired them and what they were hoping to discover. But let's start with the basics. To understand what quantum biology even is, here's Jim explaining how quantum mechanics works. Quantum mechanics is the theory of the very small. So it was developed in the 1920s 
and it's really transformed physics and chemistry. It's a new way of describing the behavior of atoms and the particles that make up atoms, electrons and protons and neutrons. And it's very, very different to the sort of physics that we learn at school about how everyday objects behave. In school physics classes, we're taught Newtonian mechanics that derives from the work of Isaac Newton. This paints a picture of a clockwork universe in which all physical objects obey certain laws and change their configurations in a way that we can predict. Quantum mechanics is different, says Jim. It says that down at this subatomic level, particles can behave in a very strange way. So a particle can be in two places at once. It can tunnel through impenetrable barriers. Two distant particles can be in instantaneous communication. It all sounds very counterintuitive and mysterious and yet it is the most powerful theory in physics because it it's really led to our understanding of the modern world these weird effects such as being in two places at once are not just mathematical quirks that make the theory hold together they have actually been produced in laboratories over and over and we use quantum mechanics all the time probably half of the technology we use now the fact that we're Having this interview over Skype, for example, is only possible because we developed computers and we developed computers because of microchips and semiconductors and silicon chips. That all wouldn't work if we didn't understand the quantum world. It's, it's the theory of the elementary building blocks of the universe. Once upon a time, I was a PhD student in physics, and I remember taking quantum mechanics and thinking, on uh, some days I could kind of grasp it, and then the next day I was like, actually, I don't understand it. Um, do you understand it? Um, I, I think all physicists, if they'll admit to it, feel the same way. I understand the theory. The mathematics is, is beautiful and very carefully constructed and all makes sense. Um, and we use quantum mechanics to learn about the world. Without quantum mechanics, we wouldn't have so much of modern physics and chemistry. But when you dig down and say, yeah, but how? How can that particle be over here and yet be over there at the same time? That's when it goes against common sense. And you know, famous physicists from Niels Bohr to Richard Feynman have said, look, if you're not baffled, bamboozled by quantum mechanics, then you haven't got it. It really is baffling, but that's the way it is. We know from experiments that quantum effects such as entanglement, when particles are mysteriously linked regardless of how far away from each other they are, are fragile. Such properties are easily broken down by the type of vibration of particles you get at hot temperatures, like those inside our bodies. This means that experiments looking at such quantum effects are often performed at temperatures near absolute zero. So why on earth would you see strange quantum effects in the chaotic environment inside living organisms? John Joe first had the idea when pondering new research showing that under some circumstances, starving bacteria could develop a mutation surprisingly quickly that helped them survive. This didn't appear random, and that was shocking. According to modern biology, mutations in any organism should always occur at random. This is why evolution is blind. Random mutations are its driving force. So these so-called adaptive mutations were a mystery. But he had a hunch. Here's John Joe. I was reading these papers, as were an awful lot of molecular geneticists and microbiologists back in the 1990s. And I'd just been reading 
a book by uh, John Grimm called Schrodinger's Cat, which is one of the first popular science books that made quantum mechanics accessible to people like me who don't understand the formalism, the mathematics of quantum mechanics. And I was totally fascinated by the science. And then this adaptive mutation story hit. And I thought, well, maybe quantum mechanics is involved. To learn more, John Joe phoned up the physics department at his university. So I went along and gave a seminar to the physics department. And it was politely received, but skeptically received. But Jim was in the audience. And Jim afterwards came up to me and said, look, um, you know, I'm interested in this. Let's uh, see if we can make it work. So over the next year or two, we got together over a coffee or a pint or whatever to uh, hammer out various ideas until we eventually put a paper together, which we got published in around about um, 1999, I think it was. I thought I discovered the key to life, the <laughs> secret of life. So uh, I was spurred on to write a book called Quantum Evolution, uh, which was published in 2000. After this book, which hypothesized that quantum physics may have played a crucial role in the origin and evolution of life, everything went pretty quiet. But it turns out that they were indeed onto something. Over the following few years, scientists started discovering signs that quantum physics was indeed involved in biological processes, ranging from photosynthesis to bird navigation. A living cell is, is a complex place full of thousands of chemical reactions, lots of things happening, it's noisy, it's a complex environment. We don't expect to see quantum effects there. And yet in the last 10, 15 years or so, there have been these isolated experiments that show that, in fact, somehow, life has evolved to make use of some of these um, quantum tricks. Photosynthesis is a very good example. It seems now there's ample experimental evidence to suggest that that first stage in photosynthesis, where chlorophyll molecules capture particles of, of sunlight, photons, and deliver them to the reaction center where they can make use of their energy to drive biology, that follows the rules of quantum mechanics. The photon doesn't get from A to B following a particular path. It explores multiple routes simultaneously in a way that physicists and chemists have sort of got used to, even if we're not happy with it, but biologists find it absolutely shocking. It seems somehow life has developed the ability to, to use quantum mechanics to make the processes of, of life more efficient. Photosynthesis is one. The more speculative ideas uh, are things to do with the nature of smell or the nature of how some animals uh, sense the Earth's magnetic field. That seems to have a quantum origin. We're still looking for confirmation, you know, experimental evidence for that. But all indicators are that there are these isolated examples in biology that we cannot explain without quantum mechanics and its strange rules. John Joe also points to the way birds navigate around the Earth. Bird navigation is a terrific example because they seem to use this property of entanglement, which is one of the weirdest parts of quantum mechanics, which uh, allows particles that are separated to nevertheless be connected in a weird way that even Einstein really couldn't accept and uh, called it spooky action at a distance. But the evidence seems to be that birds use it to navigate around the globe. After these intriguing initial findings, the pair decided to get more serious about the subject. Jim and I were very keen to get involved with this new exploding field, but 
it was uh, considered not well enough established, too speculative to be funded in the UK. We never managed to get any funding despite several attempts. But after writing another popular book on the topic, Life on the Edge, they did manage to persuade funders that quantum biology needs to be tackled by scientists with a particular combination of skills, mastering the mathematics of quantum mechanics, but also having knowledge of biology and computational science. And that's what the new doctoral training centre is all about. In the near future, the team at the University of Surrey wants to focus on working out whether quantum mechanics really is involved in adaptive mutations such as those in bacteria, and try to discover more evidence for how it drives photosynthesis. This could potentially help us develop better ways of harnessing solar energy. Plants are after all incredibly effective at converting sunlight into energy. But there are other applications too. The field is so open in terms of the possibilities. Those people who are trying to develop kind of computers called quantum computers, if anyone managed to invent a real working, powerful quantum computer, it would change the world. One of the intriguing things about all this is that quantum mechanical properties tend to get broken down if there's too much heat or too many vibrations. And yet that fragility does not seem to be happening in the living world. Life seems to have found a way of avoiding that. And it manages to do these quantum mechanical calculations, if you like, in hot, wet systems like us, where you've got this turbulent motion of molecules all around, vibrations coming in from all sorts of sources, and yet it's still able to work in this quantum mechanical level. So cracking that problem could even generate a new revolutionary form of computers. The philosophical implications of quantum biology are perhaps even more mind-blowing. Life and consciousness have somehow evolved from a bunch of inanimate matter made up of atoms and molecules. Could the quirky world of quantum mechanics be what made life possible in the first place, enabling the kind of purposeful processes that make living organisms different to lumps of matter like rock or ice? Well, I, I think to, to say that life wouldn't have been possible without quantum mechanics is probably too early to say. Of course, uh, people like John Joe and I uh, are more on the sort of the optimistic side of this argument, but there are plenty of scientists who think that even if quantum mechanics plays a role down at the, the molecular level and, uh, inside living systems, then it, 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 it's not crucial for life, you know, that, that it's just there along for the ride. And I think that's something we still have to try and understand. I don't think there's anything particularly magical. If, if life has evolved the ability to, you know, to, to, to make use of some of the, the tricks from the quantum world, then that's no more crazy or, or surprising than it having evolved any tricks at all. You know, life has been around for long enough that if there are any, if anything in, in the laws of physics and chemistry that would allow it to become more efficient, it would have hit upon them. So what is their gut feeling about what they may find? Well, the hunch, or certainly what John Joe and I would like to think may become clearer in the years to come, is that life is, is special. We know there's no magic pixie dust that's sprinkled on inanimate matter and, and makes it animate, makes it alive. And yet there is something special about life. You know, we are more than just steam engines. You know, we, we don't just consume energy uh, and, and turn it into th these systems, I guess, that can replicate, make copies of each other and maintain a highly ordered state. It's been suggested before, 
decades ago, Erwin Schrödinger, the physicist considered to be the founding father of quantum mechanics, actually suggested that quantum mechanics could be what differentiates the living from the non-living. He wrote a book called uh, What is Life in the 1940s, where he proposed that it may be that living matter utilizes the tricks of the quantum world, which distinguishes it, differentiates it from inanimate matter of equivalent complexity. So we would speculate that quantum mechanics is what gives life the edge. It's what gives life its magical something. That would explain life in a way that does away with you know, the old ideas of vitalism or, or a spirit or anything like that. It's just down to the laws of physics. But we need something that makes life different from inanimate matter of equivalent complexity. Maybe it's quantum mechanics, maybe not, but that's what we need to find out. Perhaps the biggest challenge in science is figuring out what human consciousness is. A couple of years ago, a paper by Matthew Fisher, a physicist at the University of California in Santa Barbara, suggested that quantum biology may be a way forward. He proposed that the properties of phosphorus atoms can be spookily connected in such a way that they could enable the brain to function much like a quantum computer. But John Joe thinks the field of quantum biology is not quite ready for this big question. What is happening with a lot of the quantum consciousness stuff? They work downwards, saying, well, we don't really understand consciousness and um, we don't really understand quantum mechanics, so let's put them together and they kind of cancel each other out in some mystifying way. No, they just make two. One problem plus the second problem makes two problems, not zero problems. So, yeah, it could be, but there's another saying in, in science that you've got to be open-minded, but not so much your brain falls out. <laughs> and I think that is something that uh, many of the people in the quantum consciousness have to bear in mind more often, that you've got to be sceptical. The essence of science is being sceptical. Jim agrees. We're a long way from being able to test whether quantum mechanics plays a role in the brain. That's not to say it doesn't, but I, I heard a scientist once tell me that um, scientific reputations like your virginity, you can only lose it once. <laughs> I did have a hunch that they wouldn't want to get too deep into the question of quantum consciousness. And I do understand why. You need to nail the basics before you start wildly speculating about something as mysterious as human consciousness. But the fact that we're even talking about whether quantum mechanics is what makes life possible shows why this emerging field is so exciting. My gut feeling is that there are many intriguing discoveries to come. That's truly mind-blowing stuff. And if you, unlike me, actually understood all the details there, you may be interested in applying for the new doctoral training centre in quantum biology. That's nearly all for this episode of The Anthill. But before we go, we wanted to give a little shout-out to some other podcasts you might like to check out. First, here's a message from our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia about their monthly podcast, Trust Me, I'm an Expert. Hey, Ant Hill listeners, if you like this podcast, go check out its weird Australian cousin. Trust me, I'm an expert. A show from The Conversation Australia. In our next episode, out June 1, we're breaking down some tricky and sometimes baffling topics like why do people like pimple popping videos? 
Oh. Really bizarre. Yep. Oh. yep. And would you be able to explain at a dinner party how the wild world of quantum mechanics actually works? Any piece of electronics you have, be it your phone, headphones, is using quantum mechanics. Trust me, I'm an expert, is out at the start of every month. And if politics and global diplomacy is more your thing, we recommend you seek out the Political Worldview podcast hosted by Adam Quinn and Scott Lucas at the University of Birmingham. Their latest episode, number 45, takes a deep dive into President Donald Trump's decision to pull the US out of the Iran nuclear deal and what happens next. Look out for the Political Worldview podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now that is it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks, as ever, to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Anthill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoyed the show, please share your love with friends and do give us a review online. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.